Well, if you have your Bibles, we will look at the last uh, four verses in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I hope you've enjoyed going through this letter, which presents Christ to us in such uh, glory, presents us in the fullness of our own sin and weakness, in our need for the new birth, and, and then seeing all that's provided for us in Christ. I uh, truly enjoyed uh, studying this letter, and, uh, and I pray that it would just have its continued effect on us. Let's look at verse 21 as Paul closes this letter. Uh, he says, So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Father, even as we look at Paul's blessing, that he bestows on the church in Ephesus and by implication to us. Father, would you fill our hearts with all that is here? For we know that every word you give us is to be applied to our lives and to strengthen us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians with a blessing beyond what we can imagine. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that are to be given to us uh, in Christ. He ends his letter with a blessing. And I want to ask a question at the beginning. We should know the answer to this. And I'm sure you do, but it's good to think through questions like this. How can God bless us? How can God bless us? You realize that this Bible answers that question? No other religion can answer that question. You might say, well, God can bless us because He's good. He does good things, so He could bless us for that reason. But that reason there only creates the problem in a more precise way. Right? Because God is good. But since God is good... And since He is just, that's 
why the question is so hard. How can God, who's good and just, let's just think about what that means. What does it mean to be good and just? That means to hate anything that is evil. Anything that is in rebellion to Him, He must punish. And who is in rebellion to Him? We are. Sin, that, that's what sin is. It's missing the mark to all that God has called us to and transgressing past all the lines God has given us. So how can Paul start a letter with a blessing and end a letter with a blessing and God remain good and just? Psalm 5 says this. This might surprise you. Psalm 5, beginning of verse 4, says this. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Evil cannot dwell with God. Now the very next verse you can't cut out of your Bible. Verse 5 of Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You know the scripture says that? That God hates all evil doers. The boastful cannot stand before his sight. And then he says, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So how can Paul begin a letter to sinners with blessing? Not just any blessing, but all the blessings in the heavenlies. And then end his letter saying, let me leave you with the blessing of Christ. Well, the answer to that question is, is God could not bless you and God could not bless me in and of myself or in and of yourself. This entire letter, one of the most fundamental themes of it is proclaiming to us the doctrine of the union of Christ. You realize that? God can only be good to us in Christ. Otherwise, he would lose his justice. You know, Allah may be just according to his followers. He does what's right. And then you ask them, are you going to make it? And they say, I don't know. And I say, well, you're not if he's going to retain his justice, because you're not good. So if, if Allah lets you in heaven, he has just lost his righteous judgment. He's not good anymore. 
the answer to the question how God can retain his goodness and his justice and bless us is only if you and I can somehow can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Every good thing, that this is what you must know from this letter, every good thing that God is towards you, He is only good in that thing towards you in Christ and because of Christ, and for Christ's sake. You realize that? Everything. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go from beginning to Ephesians 1 to the end. We're going to do this back and forth, back and forth. If you have your Bibles and want to track along, uh, you can. But let, we're going to do some of this. We're trying to remember where we've been. And we're going to see how Paul's conclusion is a sort of summary of all that he's said to us. But let me first show you that the blessing at the beginning and the blessing at the end is only because of our union in Christ. You ready to look at some of these blessings rapid fire? Here's how he begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that's how Paul became an apostle, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, what does it say? In Christ. How did you come to faith? We're going to look at this in a moment. You got your faith in Christ because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So if you're believing today, you're believing today because you are found in Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we could stop right there. If you have any blessing from God, you only have it in Christ, for every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. So the most important thing in your life, at the end of your life, and throughout your life right now, is Answering the question, am I found in him or in myself or in yourself? You know, John describes that those who don't have the son have the wrath of God remaining on them. They don't have the goodness of God promised to them through blessings, but the promise of judgment. Are you in Christ? Look at verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In Him, there's union with Christ, we have what? Redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We have redemption in Christ. It's according to His grace. Look at verse 10 of Ephesians 1 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So reconciliation between God and man, that which we're going to look at in a moment, is where? Found how? In Christ. 
Look at verse 11. In Him we've obtained an inheritance. You realize what's standing before you, Christian? Do you realize what your eternity is going to look like? In Him you have that. And then he says, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So you get your inheritance from Christ. You've been predestined according to Christ's purpose for you. Look at verse 13 of Ephesians 1. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Spirit. So it was in Him when you heard the word of truth and believed in Him were sealed with the Spirit. Can you get the Holy Spirit apart from Christ? No, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Look at Ephesians 2.6. It says, And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Now, how in the world can, when Christ is proclaimed by Paul as being above every rule and authority, every angel, every demon, every spiritual power, Christ is the highest, and He's at the right hand of God, and this verse says, you are raised up with Him, how? In Christ Jesus. That's how. Only in Him. Look at Ephesians 2.7. So that in the coming ages, this is all eternity. If you ever say, what's it going to be like in the coming ages? What's it going to be like for all eternity? Here's part of the answer. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. I don't know what to picture here. But if I can picture Christ with an infinite large container that has infinite amount of grace, in the coming ages, He's going to line up all the sinners who are unworthy in and of themselves but have put their hope in Christ. And for all eternity, He tips the bucket over, the riches of His grace forever and ever and ever. The tense of those words are that it's never-ending. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's like after a million years of God, you're already living with Him face to face in His presence. But the riches of His grace is more. And it's more. It's almost like, stop! You've given too much. I'm unworthy of any more 
grace. No, it's immeasurable. And how is that true for you? In Christ. In Christ, it is. Or how about verse 10 of Ephesians 2? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. How did you become who you are? A born-again Christian. You were created in Christ Jesus. You realize that? You didn't give yourself the birth. The Spirit of God gave you your birth. What part did you have in your first birth? Nothing. You were just born. Well, what about your second birth? Being born again Christian. You're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're a born-again believer Christian in Christ, in His work. You're His workmanship. Therefore, all the good works you do is to the praise of His glorious grace because you wouldn't be who you are apart from His mercy and grace. I already know I'm going way too slow today. Look at 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking about Gentiles that have been separated from God, but they've been brought near. That's you and I. How are we brought near? By now in Christ we've been brought near. How about Ephesians 2.22? In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Our unity as a church, though not perfect, is by the grace of God. And that's only in Christ. You realize that? It's not possible apart from Christ. Look at Ephesians 3.6. This mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All of the promises of God are in Christ. How in the world can a sinner ever with boldness and confidence walk into the presence of God? How could that ever be? Look at Ephesians 3:11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You realize that? The privilege to just pray and know that you have God's ear. The God of the universe personally not only is willing to hear from you, He's wanting to hear from you. Not only on this earth can you have full confidence that when you die, you will see Him and be able to come right into His presence because... You are in Christ. You see, this is why so often our Roman Catholic friends 
look at us as arrogant. So you think you're going to heaven? And we confidently say, yes. Well, well, isn't that presumptuous? No. Well, you think you're better than me? No, I don't. But I get to go to heaven with perfect works because I'm not found in myself, but I'm found in Christ Jesus. That's why there's boldness and confidence. It's being found in Him. Ephesians 4.21 He says, assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as truth is in Jesus. You realize there is no truth outside of Jesus Christ? That all the treasures of wisdom are bound up in Christ? You want to seek truth? You want to seek wisdom? There's only one place to seek it, in Christ. How about Ephesians 4.32? He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, we can't read verses like this and miss it. Every time Paul tells a Christian that God, he reminds them of a promise or or an encouraging word and a blessing to Christians, he's always going to talk about union with Christ. Just look at Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. You, you, you might just say, as, as God forgave you. You forgive one another as God forgave you. But Paul can't help it. He says, as God in Christ forgave you. Because God can't just forgive you. But He can in Christ. All that to just be an introduction to remind you that throughout this entire book, as we look at this concluding blessing, He's already taught us that all the blessings of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Let's look at our text. Let's look at this blessing. I feel kind of bad because in my notes I don't have a point for verses 21 and 22 and I think there is a point here so I'll just tell it to you. What you see Paul continually do at the beginning of his letters and at the end of his letters, is he thanks God for other believers' faith, for other believers' fellowship, for other believers' help. He thanks God for their faith because God is the one that worked that in them, right? And at the end of the letter here, you see how much love Paul has for the other brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul is imprisoned in Rome when he's writing this letter. And he says, so that you may know how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So Paul says, uh, Tychicus... That's an interesting name to say. You might, you might think, well, I've never heard of him. Well, he's throughout uh, Acts. 
uh, he's in Titus, he's in 2 Timothy, Paul's referring to him. This is a beloved brother that he describes uh, here in our text as a faithful minister in the Lord. And Paul's concern is, is I want you to know, uh, church at Ephesus, how I'm doing, how we're doing, so that your hearts may be encouraged. So this is something we can get better at, I think. Is there anything more encouraging than catching up with a brother or sister in Christ and they share what God's been doing in their hearts? It might be conviction of sin and repentance and, and, and rejoicing in that repentance and forgiveness in Christ. It could be I'm going through a really hard time, but let me show you how God's been faithful to me. Couldn't you sit there and listen to believers' testimonies about what God's doing in their life? over and over and over again. I don't think I've ever heard a testimony where I kind of thought, wow, that was good. We need more of that. And Paul knows that it is so important that he's going to take a brother that is so important to him and that he loves and can be useful to Paul, but he says, I want him to carry the message and explain how we're doing. And he says, so that your hearts may be encouraged. All right? I think we need more testimony time. More opportunities as God, by his grace, is, is, uh, is opportunities to share these things. I'll never forget uh, C.J. Mahaney, uh, a pastor that... Uh, when I first started going to conferences like the Shepherds Conference and stuff, uh, uh, I got introduced to C.J. Mahaney. But the thing that stuck out to me is he always was thanking God for this brother and that brother and this church and this work and that. that you would call it maybe like evidences of grace. Sometimes we think, well, we don't want to puff up people's egos. But if we have good theology, how is somebody what they are? They're the workmanship of God. So to highlight God's grace in someone's life is not to puff up a person, but to show the work of God in that person's life. You know who's one of the last person to see the work of God in in their life is usually the person in whom God is showing. So I think way more often we need to talk about and thank God for the grace we see. It's easy to see the sin and we can be helpful to one another in helping our brothers and sisters in Christ see sin they don't see and then bring them to Christ so that they would repent of it and trust in Christ. That's easy to see, and that's important, but it's also important to encourage one another by speaking about what God is doing. No, there's not perfection, but there is 
growth. There is more conformity being transformed in the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Well, shouldn't we give Christ the glory for that? So I'll never forget this old guy about 90 years old speaking at a Dakota Baptist convention and first one I ever went to. And his whole message was, pastors, you need to forget the offenses. You need to forget those and just remember remember the good things. Paul had an uncanny ability to talk to really difficult churches and seem to remember and be thankful to God for the good things and let go, not become bitter by all the ways. You know, Paul says, I want several times, no one, everyone deserted him. But God, except for God. He was in that position. But you read his letters and you don't see a bitter man, do you? And so I'll never forget this old guy saying, Pastor, pastors, you got to learn from Paul. You can make your list and you can become an angry man. Or you can be thankful for what God has done in your people and with the believer. So, now let's look at the blessing that Paul gives in verse 23. Basically, he points out four specific things. Peace, love, faith, and grace that are ours in Christ. At the beginning, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it gets summarized in these four things. He says, peace be to the brothers. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul wants to end this letter in a very familiar way, really similar to the way he started it. And he wants to begin by talking about peace and love. And both those words have to do with relationships. To not have peace is to have conflict, right? To not have unity. And here he says, peace to you and love in Christ. Peace to you and love. Well, we say, when did he talk about peace? What's he talking about? He fleshed this out throughout the letter, did he not? Look at verse 2 of Ephesians 1. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could ask the question, how could God ever have peace towards sinners? And then in Ephesians 2, he describes how someone who by nature is a children of wrath can come to the point of peace. And it's by pure grace. And then in verse 12, he talks about this reconciliation. Ephesians 2.12, he says, Remember, you Gentiles, that you were one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here we get it in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. How can there be peace 
He himself is our peace. Isn't that good? Because if, if, if peace relies on you or me, we're all in trouble, right? We don't have what it takes in and of ourselves for peace in relationship with one another or in our relationship with God. But here, he clearly tells us that for he himself is our peace, who made us both one. Who's us? Jew and Gentile. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The picture is here. There is a new man. On this earth. And they come from both the Gentiles and from the Jews. And those two groups of people that hated each other's guts have peace. How? In Christ. In Christ. Man can be reconciled to man in Christ. Kids, on your notes, if you look at the back, I gave you an answer there, right? Number one, Christ brings about peace between God and man. And we could say, and Jew and Gentile, or you could write, between man and man. Both would be right answers. And then the most glorious truth, verse 16. So he created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The way you can love your enemy is in Christ. And the way God can love you and you can love God is in Christ. The hostility's been broken. Your sins have been satisfied as Christ bore the wrath for your sins on the cross so that now God relates to us as a father. He relates to us as those who are already on the inside. When he disciplines us, he disciplines us as children whom he loves. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see? And so he lays out that peace. And then in Ephesians 4, he talks about the peace we're to have with one another. In verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here's how we're to relate to one another. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. I just want to point out something here. Paul says, when we relate to one another, have patience. Why? Because he knows what you're like and he knows what I'm like. And if we're going to have unity, we're going to have to have patience for each other because none of us have arrived. Right? Have patience. And then he says, bearing with one another. He already knows that we're difficult with each other. But then he says this, eager to maintain 
the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain that which God already started in Christ. All right? This is a huge theme throughout the letter. <clears throat> now let's look at love. Well, one more, one more piece I want to point out. Ephesians 6.15, he says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. All right? So we just got done with that. That How can we be ready with the gospel? How, how can we be ready to fight the devil? Well, the devil comes as the accuser. Look at that sin. Look at that sin. Look at that sin. Oh, yeah? Well, that's true. You tell me condemnation is sure. But Christ has spoken peace to me through His cross. And so, as I believe by faith in the peace God has given me in Christ, the devil's attacks no longer catch me off guard and catch you off guard, all right? Now let's look at love, all right? He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. Man, we got a lot of these. I'm just going to pick a couple to point out. Well, let's begin in Ephesians 1, verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. See, some people want to talk about predestination is God keeping people out of heaven. But that's not how the Bible describes predestination. The Bible describes our predicament as everyone justly deserving the wrath of God in hell. If everyone goes to hell, God is done right. But in love, He predestined. Paul's talking to the church those who are born again, He predestined them, not only unto salvation, but to adoption as sons. It doesn't say He predetermined they would have an opportunity to come to Christ. It says He predestined them to adoption as sons, which means if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a son of God or a sister of God, of God, God was already working good for you before the foundation of the world. You realize that? So if you're going to think about predestination, the word and term you ought to put on it is love because it's by pure grace. God is not done wrong if He gives someone justice what they deserve. And if God of His own will and His own choice, which Paul tells the Ephesians, that's how He chose, it's pure grace and love. 
In Ephesians 1.15, we see Paul being thankful. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Let me just point this point out. What would make sense, what you would think he would say is, Ephesians, for this reason I thank you. You conjured up faith and you conjured up love. But that's not what's happening. Paul always thanks God for the faith of the believers he's talking about and the love that the believers have. He thanks God for that. Look at Ephesians 3.14. This is so important. Before Paul really starts to lay out the love of Christ, which he can't even really do, as he's trying to help us understand the immensity, you want to know what he does? He prays that you and I would have supernatural strength and power to comprehend love that's incomprehensible. Look at what he says. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. There's the supernatural power He's praying for. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's saying, I want you rooted in love that's incomprehensible. I want you grounded in love that's incomprehensible. I want your whole life to be lived out of some sort of supernatural understanding of the immeasurable love of Christ that goes forever high, goes forever low, goes forever long. He's saying, don't miss these words. I think they're so important. At the end of 17, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. He wants them to know the love of Christ. Okay, there's more love verses. He talks about how we're to speak truth to each other in love. And then he talks about how husbands are to love their wives, it becomes a very practical thing. All right? And then he says, uh, love with faith. Let me su suffice it to say this. Faith, according to Paul, yes, it's your faith. Yes, it's my faith. But the founder of it, the beginner of it, faith is viewed as a gift from God. He doesn't have a list here of, you know, the, the peace is from Christ and the love is from Christ, the faith is from you, and then the grace is from Christ. No, this, he, he views this blessing as all these things are from Christ. You might say, wow, that surprises me that my faith in Christ was actually a gift given by his grace. But right away in Ephesians 1, we already read it, verse 1, he says, 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. That's how you're faithful. In Christ. Spiritually dead people that are being controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, doesn't have faith. Right? That's why in Ephesians 2.8, it's so important. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And the Greek construction of that passage where it says, and this is, is in a neuter tense, which uh, grace and, and faith are in a feminine tense, but what it does is it goes and grabs that entire statement before. So, so that here's what he's saying. By grace you've been saved through faith. Those are two things. And this, both the grace and the faith, is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So that no one may boast. Well, if the grace came from God, but it took the faith from us to receive it, well, let's thank God and thank ourselves. But that's not what Paul highlights. And this is what the, the Scripture teaches. Jesus himself says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one's ever going to know the Father unless Christ Himself chooses to reveal the Father to Him. Philippians 1.29 speaks of faith as a gift. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. He says it's been granted to you. The thing that's already a given is that it's been granted to you to believe in Him. Isn't that incredible? Here's how Peter says it in 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle, of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We've obtained a faith. You see, that's why when I'm preaching the gospel at the nursing home to people who don't know Christ, with that preaching, what I'm praying for is God. Give them faith to see and understand and trust Christ. And if they do, I don't say, boy, look at, look at that. I did a really good job. I told them this and I told them that. And let me package that up because that works. Now I'm going to take that to the next place. No, what I say is, thank you, God, for being gracious to use your word and your spirit to bring about faith. In fact, remember the shield of faith in Ephesians 6. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Whose armor is it in that context? It's God's armor we're to put on. And part of the armor is faith. Is it our faith? Yes. Has it been given to us as a gift? 
Yes. Are we to use that faith that God has created in us? Yes. But we could have never started it apart from the grace of God. And now we're out of time and we're to the word that all these things point to, which is grace. He says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Here's what he's saying. He's saying grace be, so this is a continuing, it's such a comforting thing. It's like, it's like Paul taking grace and saying, let it remain with you. As this letter closed, let grace be with you. And someone could say, to who? To those who have been given this supernatural type of agape love. Human love, you can run to the end of it, right? I'll love you if you're lovable. But if you, if you wrong me too many times, I'm done with you. This love that's described as incorruptible love, no, it's not perfect in and of ourselves, but it is persevering. God's grace is promised to those people who have this sort of agape, persevering type of love. It's not perfect, but it is ultimately uncorruptible. What does Paul say? He says the love of Christ has been poured into our hearts. It's not our love. It's this love from Christ that's been given to us. And so what is grace? What is grace? Most often people say, well, it's unmerited favor. Well, that, it's not less than that. That's true. But even the way Paul uses it, and, and this is the very end, I promise I'm not going to go through all these points on grace, but I do want to show you Ephesians 2. I want you to see this. Look at Ephesians 2. After he laid out how we're by nature children of wrath, our lives are being controlled by the devil. And the devil could control our lives because we by nature had sinful, we wanted sin. We had corrupt desires. Here's how it all changed. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Now let's just define these words. What's mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. The first three verses in Ephesians 2 culminates to, you deserve hell, the wrath of God for all eternity. And the reason why Christian in Ephesus, Christian at Sovereign Grace, you're not going to get hell, you're not going to get condemnation, is not because you did something, but because God did something. Look at what he says. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. His point is this, you weren't getting better. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Mercy is not getting what you do, do deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve, getting rewarded for the life that you never lived. Getting Christ's righteousness. How do you get that? By pure grace. So it's not just that it's unmerited favor. It's that we deserve the wrath of God. Grace encompasses this incredible truth of God's great 
mercy that he has given us. And that's our only hope. Our only hope is if salvation is by grace alone. If salvation is 99.9999999999% Christ, and the rest of it is yours or mine, we would lose our salvation. There would be, it wouldn't be enough. But the Bible tells us our salvation is securely 100% in Christ. And the way you find yourself in Christ is by confessing your sins, agreeing with God about who you are by nature, a child of wrath deserving the just punishment of God, and looking and seeing God's great love in the person of Christ on the cross and saying, that's my only hope. And when you grab on to Christ, you say, that is my life. The miracle has happened. God has opened your eyes, showed you your hope. And you now, Christian, are in Him. And Paul wants you to remember that God isn't good to you because you lived a good day today or you did a little better than yesterday. No, He's only and ever good to you in Christ. And that work is a finished work. So let me pray. Let me end by echoing Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and for us all. Father, for this reason, I bow my knees before you, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all your fullness. Father, we pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen.